So I want to think, uh, as we look at the next bit of John's Gospel, I want to think about being a witness. And I want to ask you for um, a question for a moment that I want you to reflect on. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to, 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 to think about this question on your phone. I want to ask whether, in what set courses, in what way you have ever had to be a witness. A witness is someone who has a story that they truthfully need to tell. They are asked to do it. They are asked to tell a story in a truthful way. Uh, I love this cartoon. It just makes me laugh. My experience is that most of what makes me laugh doesn't make anybody else laugh, but we'll give it a go. Your Honour, I'd like to introduce you to a surprise witness. Who, me? Yeah, okay, never mind. All right. (laughs) I want to ask you, in what ways have you been a witness so, uh, I'm going to give you some suggestions. What I want you to do, we're going to do two questions on the thing that we call Menti. And uh, if you get out your smartphone and you point it at this slide, uh, you'll see on the right there's a QR code, uh, and that will take you to this site. If you don't know how to do that, if you Google menti.com in a minute, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to tell you the code. I'll ask you for a code. Now, what I want to ask you to, to do is answer one of the, this question. In what ways have you been asked to be a witness? Now, you might be like me and think, well, I've never been a witness. I've never been to a court of law, and I've never had to give evidence. But then I realized that there are other ways in which I've been asked to be a witness. So it may be that you have uh, witnessed somebody signing something, a mortgage or a statement, and you've just written your signature. It may be that you've had to give a reference for somebody. I give a reference for lots of people in the church, and most of the time it's good and people get the job. Um, If I don't get a job, it's not my fault. But if you've ever written a reference, uh, then that's the thing to click. It may be that you've you've had to write a statement for the insurers as to why you hit that car uh, or banged your car. Uh, or like me, why there was a deer in the road at midnight. Um, It may be that you've had to give a statement to the police. You never went to court, but you had to give a statement to the police about something you've seen. Or it may be that you've been to court. So if you found menti.com, if you put in this code 26095808, and then... I'm going to give you this, and we'll look at this first question, and then I'm going to give you a second question. I'm going to give you about 10 minutes while I'm talking for you to think about the answer, okay? Uh, So this is just a fun thing to get us going. So if we go across to that one, uh, so there we go. There, most, many of us have signed for a, a, a document. Some of us have done a reference, a statement. 30 of us have been a witness in court. That's quite interesting. This is morning and evening combined. But uh, that's, quite, that's quite a number. And I've never done that. I don't know what that experience is like. Uh, and I imagine it's quite a stressful and difficult experience. We're going to talk about the story that we have to tell. And whilst that's on there, I want to tell you, set up the second question, and then I'll ask uh, Ruben to press the button, then I will will come off that, and I'll leave you to think about it. If you've been recently at a baptism or something like that, you'll know that I've talked about uh, understanding God's love, or if you are a renewal Sunday, I've I've tried to explain God's love in five features, a past, a present, and a future. And I want to ask you in a moment, what's your story? 
of God in your life. And it might be it's all five things. It might be that it's one. It might be none of those things. But the five things, and it's kind of a simplification, but I find it kind of helpful to think about five things that God might have done in your life or offers to do in all of our lives. Number one is to do with the past, is a past cleanse that God offers to wash, white, clean, forgive. If for you, part of your story is something that you bitterly regret that God has forgiven, then in a moment I want you to click that. It's anonymous, nobody will ever know, but I just want you to think about what's your story. Past forgiven, that might be it. Present, three presents. The first one is present love and value. And if your story is that you've discovered through the death of Jesus and seeing how much the cross was, that you've discovered that God loves you and values you and that you are his child. And that has become significant to you, perhaps because it's a love greater than any love you've known from humans who are more fallible. Then that might be your story. Now, your story might be both. It might be forgiveness and love, or it might be just one or the other. What's your story? The second presence is that God gives us a purpose and, and a calling and something to do with our lives day in, day out, and a purpose and a meaning rather than the empty futility of just doing what we want. And that, I must say, is very much my story, and that's very significant to me, but it may be not the thing for you, but it may be the thing for you. And the fourth present, the fourth thing and the third present thing, past forgiveness, present love, present purpose, and thirdly, uh, and fourthly, present help, that he helps us, he guides us, he leads us in the way we want to go. Uh, he wants us to go, and, he, and he's there with us. And that might be your story. Which of these things is your story? And the last one is that God is our uh, future hope, that in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of suffering, perhaps in the midst of illness, perhaps in the midst of bereavement, your story is looking forward to the moment when every tear will be wiped away and you will be given new life. Uh, so I'm going to give you a few moments uh, to answer that question on your phone. Now, if you, press the, if you just press the arrow for us, please, Reuben, and it will appear on everybody's phone. What is your stone? And then story. Uh, fill that in, and then we'll come back to that if we go across to my computer, and we'll come back to that. We're thinking about what it, being a witness and having a story that we have to tell. I had to write a story. It wasn't a story. It was a truth as to why I was driving home from a football match. I hit a deer, or at least a deer actually hit me at 70 miles an hour. Uh, I was doing 70 miles an hour. I didn't ask the deer how fast it was going, um, but it wrote my car off and scared the bejeebies out of me, and I had to write a statement. What is the story not about a car accident, but a story about God's intervention in your life. And it might be that you just say, well, at the moment, there isn't one. That's fine. Why are we doing all of this? We're in John's Gospel, and we're going to look at a particular story that may be quite familiar to us. I like the idea that we are doing the Easter story nowhere near Easter or Christmas. I kind of like the idea, because when we... I know that you know some are bang on about this. When we do Christmas at Christmas and Easter at Easter, it goes in one ear and out the other because we're just thinking gooey thoughts. But I want to think about the reality of this event. So the story that we're up to, three weeks ago, last time I was speaking, is that Judas has brought the soldiers to point out where Jesus is, who Jesus is, kisses on the cheek, Jesus gets arrested. 
the, the guys who are with Jesus, Peter in particular, get out the sword and, and, and Peter thrashes at somebody, cuts his ear. Jesus puts his ear back on, heals him, tells Peter to put his sword away. And we talked about that, how about the way of Jesus is not the way of violence. And we say to President Putin, put your sword away. And then Jesus says to the soldiers, don't arrest these guys. I mean, Peter should have been arrested. But he says, don't arrest these guys. Just take me. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and they bound him. And they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the only one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, what this was about was that the, the Jewish leaders were worried that if the, um, their people thought that Jesus was the Messiah and rose up against the Romans with Jesus, that they would all be massacred by the Romans because they were occupied by the Romans. So they were saying, it's better that we put Jesus to death, one man, and save the whole of us from being booted out because we've rebelled against the Romans. And Annas and Caiaphas are interesting people in as much as we don't totally know what's going on because it seems to be a family dynasty. The chief priest, a little bit like Iran, is the most important person in the community, running the system, the people of Judah. And uh, so uh, it seems that, that the family, uh, Annas, his daughter, his son-in-laws, his, also his other sons, they seem to sort of all be high priests at different points or maybe joint high priest or, or whatever. It's basically the dynasty running the, the show. Now, what's interesting is that John... Well, I think it's interesting. You might be completely bored, but you're on your phone thinking about that other question. But assuming you've come back to life, what is interesting is the way John tells this story because he keeps flicking. It's like got two... Pro, two channels on. He's like he's, what, he's just flicking between two uh, programs. I don't know whether you do that. I don't know whether other people in your family do that, and you have to hit them and slap them because it's annoying. They try and watch two programs at the same time. John is telling us two stories at the same time, and it wasn't until I looked at this last week and was was studying and reading around it that I realised there's a reason why he's doing it, which I will explain, because immediately. He then flicks over to Peter. He says, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. Now, this may well have been John himself. So there's another disciple who is on the inside. He knows things. And, of course, he's, going to, he's telling us what's going on between Jesus and Annas, the, the, the high priest. So he's definitely on the in. Anyway, he was known to uh, the high priest, um, and he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside. Peter was followed, but he has to wait outside. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. She puts in a word for him. He puts in a word for her and says, look, get this, let this guy come in. Uh, he's okay. Uh, so we remind ourselves about Peter's story, that he has been angry at Jesus' arrest, and he's been set free because of Jesus. And now he's followed on. And this is what we read. She says, aren't you one of the man's disciples too, are you? You're, you aren't one of the man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. And he replied, I am not. 
He denies it. And we're maybe familiar with this moment. Why does he do that? Now, I hope none of us are going, well, I wouldn't do that. I would have said yes. Let's be honest. We'd have all been in a similar point. He's caught off guard. Suddenly panicked. The whole evening is, is traumatizing for him. And if you're anything like me, you, you say stupid things when you're caught off guard. I say stupid things all the time, but I say even more stupid things when I'm caught off guard, when I'm not expecting, when I haven't thought through what I need to say. And there may be an uncertainty. He, doesn't know, he hasn't got a clue what's going on. It may be all of that, but uncertain, uncertain there was a bit of fear. He's scared of what's going on. If you're one of those guys, you're with the guy that's in there that's been arrested, aren't you? He says, I'm not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around the fire and they made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, let's go back, flick the channel, watch the other TV. Unless some of you are wealthy and you have two TVs and you watch two programs at the same time. Uh, or if you watch one thing on your phone, another, I don't know how you do it. Anyway, meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Peter said, uh, Jesus says an interesting thing. He says, I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why, are you, why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Now, why does he do that? This is quite interesting. And this was the bit that was like an ah moment. I've got it. I understand how this fits together. Because similar to us, there was a protocol and a legal system of what happens when you are arrested. He has been arrested. Now, when someone was arrested, you know, like when... Well, maybe you don't know, but when you are arrested today, the, 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 the um, policeman gives a little spiel and he says, anything you're about to say, written down, using evidence against you, you know, have to be careful. There's a protocol. There is a protocol in this culture for what happens when you're arrested. And the protocol is this, that the people who are accusing you speak first. The witnesses against you say to the arresting people, this is what they've done wrong. So, what should have happened at this moment, as Jesus is brought to Annas, there should be some people standing there who are going to say, Jesus did this, 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 this. There should be some witnesses. So he's not denying, but he's saying that a trial can't take place without a witness. Because the accused needs to speak. And he's saying, look, I've spoken openly. I've done nothing. There are plenty of witnesses Everything I said, I said in the synagogue, bring somebody out to testify against me. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to show them and, 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 and expose to them that what they are doing is unjust and illegal. But also he wants to say to them, I am not a false prophet. I'm not coming to you and saying something that is wrong. I, what I've said is public. I'm not going to say something now that's wrong. So, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way the, you answer the high priest, he demanded? Now, the high priest isn't saying anything because the high priest has been caught out. But so often, it's people on other people's behalf who get angry. And perhaps he wanted to prove a sense of loyalty and he hits Jesus. 
And we know that Jesus taught the disciples and says to us, if someone hits you, turn the other cheek. He embodies and lives out grace in the context of aggression. He says, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. Tell me what I've done wrong. He's saying to Annas, okay, you tell me. Speak it out. Say exactly what it is I have done wrong. And Annas hasn't anything. He doesn't know what he's done wrong. He just doesn't like him. So he binds him up and sends him off to Caiaphas. Meanwhile, Swig Channel, look back at the other thing. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of the disciples too, are you? He said, he denied it saying, I am not. This is a story about witnessing. This is a story about being able to say what's going on. Nobody will come and speak for or against Jesus. He is abandoned. And Peter, John is telling us, is also not witnessing. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, that would have been, all violence and anger always comes back to haunt us, doesn't it? Here's a little tip in life. Don't cut off somebody's ear because it will come back to haunt you. She challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. Now, there's, there's a study that I did earlier that's on our series, on our YouTube channel, under Studies in John, going back uh, chapter 12 or 13, where I look about where Jesus predicts that Peter will deny Jesus and Peter says, No, I won't. And I want and I looked there at why Peter thought it was impossible for him to fail. But he does fail. And at that moment a rooster began to crow. So I want us to think about what we do with the story that's happened in our lives. Are we willing and able to say it? Or is Jesus alone? without a witness supporting him. There's a great quote from a guy called Cyprian, and this is written in the third century. That means it's about 17 or 1800 years ago that he writes this. And I think that this could be written today. He says, this is a cheerful world, as I see it from my garden under the shadows of my vines. If you are sitting in the garden or in the Sutton Park, you may go, this is a lovely world. Or perhaps you're like me, walking out in the countryside, walking the coast of Britain. This is a lovely world. It's great. Problem occurs when you meet people. Because he then goes on, but if I were to ascend to some high mountain and look over the wild lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the highways, pirates on the sea, armies fighting, cities burning. In the amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds. Selfishness and cruelty and misery and despair under all roofs. That's the paradox that we see. We go on holiday, the world's great. Come back to reality. Cities burning, we see that in our news. He says it is a bad world, an incredibly bad world. Then he says, 
But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are laughed at, humiliated, thought to be irrelevant, thought to be stupid, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. In other words, they are not driven by everybody else's agendas, by trying to please other people, by what other people want of them, by what social media says, by what's in, by what's out. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. They are Christians. And I am one of them. Isn't that great? That's his story. The world is rubbish. But I met a group of people who could handle it. And I am now one of them. What's our story? Let's go back and see how we've answered that. If we may, uh, Reuben, go back to that. What is our story? What would you say... If somebody said to you, what has God done in your life? Do we, have we got a story to, to say? If, if somebody said, I want you to write a statement. Maybe you've been baptized recently and you can remember what you said. That's part of what we do. We're going to have some baptisms coming up in the next few weeks in morning and evening. If you want to make a statement, come and talk to me about being baptized. Is your story the story of forgiveness? Is your story the story of being loved? Is your story the story of God saying, do this with your life? Is your story the story of God helping and guiding you through difficult circumstances? Is your story that you've come to believe in a life beyond this life that will make sense of the brokenness of this world? Or is it another story? The question is, are we able to tell our story? Or in the panic of the moment, like Peter, do we deny it? Let's go back to the other computer. How is it that we might fail? I want to suggest the obvious, and then I want to talk about the unobvious way. Two dangers, two ways of failing, uh, two ways in which we deny our story and fail as witnesses. The one is the obvious, and it's the way that we see in this story. It is simply being silent, not telling anyone. Some of you will know my story. Um, If if you uh, get baptized, I often tell my testimony, my story, uh, as I get baptized. And so so lots of you will have heard this, but I will just uh, share it to you again with the little moment that's pertinent to this. So I started to become a Christian when I was 13. I was uh, in a, I went, my sister took me to a youth group. I heard about Jesus. I thought it was fantastic. I invited Jesus into my life. I said the prayer. I did what I was supposed to do. I considered that I had become a Christian. That was at the end of half term in, uh, in the um, 
the October half term. On the Monday, I had to go to school. I had put on my school bag while I was, I was on this camp committing myself to Jesus, I put these little stickers that we, could, they were, we were given that said, Jesus is Lord. And I put them all over my bag and I thought, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go to tell everybody that I'm a Christian. I went to a very big, comprehensive, um, 10 forms in each year, uh, a mixture of backgrounds, some quite rough elements, and, uh, and then me. Uh, I got halfway to school, and I decided this was a very bad idea. I got off my bike, and I uh, peeled off all these stickers. For the next two years, I went to school, and I went to church, and I played such a game to make sure neither group knew about each other. Nobody at school, none of my friends, was to know that I went to church or that I was a Christian. And none of the people at church were to know any of the people I knew at school, and they certainly weren't to ask me about what I do at school. I lived this dual world because I was terrified of people knowing that I was a Christian. And I was very unhappy. It's not a great way to live, and I didn't enjoy my, my school years uh, Roll on two years, I'm sitting in a church meeting, uh, a Christian event at church, and the guy's talking about Jesus. I've heard that many, many times before. He talks about Jesus loving me, and something happened in my heart. And I grasped at the age of 15 that Jesus absolutely loved me. And my life was turned around. So I started to become a Christian when I was 13 and I finished when I was 15. I can tell you the day I started, I can tell you the day I finished. The middle bit, which is the pregnancy bit, was a bit messy. Pregnancy often is. But I had a problem because I was absolutely terrified of people knowing that I was a Christian. And I had all these people in church who thought I'd been a Christian for two years, and now I wanted to get baptised. But I knew I couldn't really get baptised when all the people I knew from Monday to Saturday had no idea that I loved Jesus. And now I really did love Jesus. And so it now really affected me. So uh, I didn't know what to do. So I asked I just said, God, I don't know how to deal with this. I just, I don't know what to do. And I had no idea what to do. And uh, what happens when you pray a prayer that you want God to do, but you don't know how he could do it or how you don't actually know that you want to do anything is a dangerous prayer. It's like saying, Lord, here's my life. It's like, yes, but really, I don't know. But he answers those prayers when they're really what we want. So in the summer... Uh, I come from Cambridge, the home of, of appalling football, but also the home of the Cambridge Folk Festival, which is the biggest, I believe, biggest folk festival in, uh, in the UK. And uh, but th th it happens in a bit like here, it happens in an equivalent kind of thing to Sutton Park. So right in the, where, near where I lived, half a mile from where I lived, there's a park, in that park is the Cambridge Folk Festival. And uh, when I was a kid, uh, my friends and I used to jump over the fence. We wouldn't pay for a ticket. We'd jump over, jump over the fence and get in and 
mingle and whatever. Now, as a Christian, there was a group of Christians from local churches who went to the a festival, and they set up a tent, and they put a dirty great banner over it called the Jesus Tent. And it's very similar to what we would now do with Sutton Pastor. So basically, we just were there when people wanted to know about Jesus, we would talk to them, but more often, if people were in distress, we would pray with them. People that had too much to drink, people that had taken too many drugs, we would pray with them and help them. I am sitting there under this banner saying the Jesus tent when all my school friends walk past. And they go, what are you doing there, Don? And I go, yeah, I'm, I'm helping. And I'm panicking inside. And they go, were you a Christian? And I go, yeah. And it's a mixture of relief and fear. And that moment, as much as my discovering Jesus loved me changed my life, because... When I, by the time I got back to school, the whole of the, uh, of the year, I was in year, the last year, what's that, uh, year 11, the whole of year 11, and then into the sixth form, Donald's a religious nut, he's become a Christian, he's a weirdo, uh, which was quite liberating because then I could just act up to that, and then like, everybody knows and we know where we are, and I'd have never have planned that way. So... But I know, and I can't, you know, that fear that somebody will find out that I'm a Christian is painful. So if you can ask God to get you through it, it's liberating. Maybe we're silent on being a disciple. That nobody knows that we're intending or trying to follow Jesus. Maybe we're silent. That nobody knows that we pray. We don't even, they don't even know that we pray for them. Maybe we're silent about our beliefs and what values and what matters to us. And silence is this first danger. But maybe it's like Peter. There's, a, there's an element of self-preservation that is overriding us. And we're unconvinced that Jesus will help us. We're unconvinced that he's worth the ridicule. I felt that for two years, that to be laughed at by my friends was the worst possible thing. And when it came to it, they did laugh at me. But it was okay. Because actually, for the previous two years, they'd been laughing at me for a load of other things, the size of my nose, the length of my hair, a load of other things. I discovered, actually, people laugh at us. You might as well be laughed at for following Jesus. And yes, some people have rejected me over the years. But do we really want to be in with the people who would reject us? So how do we overcome it? Well, we make that prayer. Lord, will you help me? Lord, will you bring that moment where I say, yeah, I went to church last night. What was he talking about? Well, funny you should say that. He was talking about being terrified of telling anybody that you went to go to church. I'm really sorry to hear about what's going on in your life. I've been praying for you. These are the easier ways to do it. 
I'm not a big fan of I'm a Christian. I'm not a big fan of I'm a Christian because there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians I wouldn't identify with. I'm more of a fan of this is what I do. And perhaps we want the motivation that we don't meet anybody in heaven who says, I never knew you. There's a little cartoon I want to show you around that idea. Hey, I never expected to see you here. In 35 years as neighbors, Arnie and Bart never knew they were both Christians. I don't want to be in that position. It's quite difficult for me now because I work for a church, so it's, it's I'm beyond that stage. I understand that. But those who make it hardest to be a Christian in this world are the other Christians. So maybe it's easier to say, you know what, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple because that creates a conversation. I believe in Jesus. There's a story uh, that's told of a guy who was asked the question, are you saved? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And uh, I've been asked that over the years, sometimes uh, after my behavior. Are you really saved, Donald? Uh, But anyway, he answers this. He says, uh, well, let's just rephrase it. We might want to say, are you a disciple of Jesus? But this is his answer. He says, why do you ask me? I could tell you anything. Here are the names of my colleagues, clients, and workers. Ask them if I've been saved. See, the easy thing about denying Jesus is to just shut up. The much more serious danger and the much bigger problem is that we deny Jesus by our lifestyle. In other words, the way we live makes people go, well, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. And our words don't match our lifestyle. And what that guy is getting at in the way he answered that question is, don't ask me if you think, if, for me to tell you I'm a Christian, because of course I'll say I'm a Christian. Ask the people who know me, is he a Christian? Is he a disciple? Is he a follower of Jesus? That's much more challenging. Because when we think about our story... Our story may at times be asked of us. What has God ever done for you? What do you believe in God? Why do you go to church? That might be a question that's asked of us. That may be asked occasionally in life. But far often people are simply watching and saying, does their words match their story? Does their lifestyle match their story? And if we say, we, if our story is the forgiveness of God, then we cannot be people who judge others. and label a group, a belief, a system as beyond God's love. Because if we are people who have a story of grace, we have to be a people who live out the story of grace. We can't be the people who condemn. If your story is, you know, God has forgiven me, and they go, well, that's interesting. Why haven't you forgiven so-and-so in the other office? Then our story is denied by our behavior. And if we are filled with bitterness, then the story is not being accurately witnessed. It's not, we're not telling the truth, are we? And if we uh, say that our story is forgiveness, but we live in a sort of proud arrogance that we're better than other people, rather than the humility that rubs alongside those who are sinful and says, you know, so am I. 
The moment we start to pretend that we are not sinful and those other people are, and therefore they need to be excluded or condemned or criticized or rebuked or challenged or admonished, or whatever word we use, and we imply that we're the good people, then we're not a witness to the forgiveness of God in our lives. And if our story is the love of God within us, but we don't live out love for others, if, we, if our story is that God has demonstrated his love on the cross for us, but we can't show God's love to anyone else because we're consuming and grabbing and doing everything for ourselves, we're living in greed, we're holding on to stuff, we're building our own lives, our own self-centered use of, our own, of God's resources given to us, and we do not care for the hungry, the homeless, for those who are... Uh, alone or new or well, uh, visitors to us, if we are the ones that are putting up barriers and saying we can't have more asylum seekers in our nation, if we are the people who are saying this is us, this is now for us, then we deny that we believe in God's love. And if we become... If we say we, our story is of God's love for us, but actually all we do on a Sunday is talk to our own friends and our own group. And we live in cliques. Older ones of you will, will know the name of Graham Kendrick. Graham Kendrick writes or wrote uh, a number of worship songs, which, are, which are, are, are fine, but he wrote some other songs which are not worship songs, which are brilliant, some of them. And I want to read you the, the line, uh, a little verse of a song that he wrote many years ago. Uh, called Secret Saviour. He's talking about this idea that we're not telling anyone. He says this, this is the world calling. Well, I heard you had an answer and I heard you sang a song and you love your secret saviour. Is this a secret, what we do here? Nobody tomorrow needs to know what you've sung or believed. He says, well, I heard you had an answer and I heard you sang a song and you love your secret saviour and you know what's right and wrong. That's the perception of Christians, that we're intolerant, that we've got a whole list of things that are wrong and a whole list of things that are right. And he says, this is the world calling. But although your door is open, you did not really let me in. And if I crept in upon your privacy, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. This idea that there may be people among us who are crying out to know about God's love and crying out for forgiveness, but all they're getting from the church is judgment and cliquiness. All they're getting is doors that are open, literally, but metaphorically closed, because we don't want anyone else. If we say we believe in the love of God, if that's our story, then we bear witness to it, not by being divided, not by excluding, not by deciding who's in and who's out, but by welcoming in the name of Christ. And if we say that our story is that God has given us a purpose and a meaning and a reason for living, then we cannot deny it by living for self. And if we say that our story is, is God's help in our lives, that he's strengthened and comforted us, then we cannot deny it by doing everything in our own strength and in our own way. 
And if we say that our story is a future hope, then we can't deny it by living as though we believe all this world is all there is. If we believe in a resurrection and a heaven and a future life, then we don't need as much stuff now so we can give it away. And if we say that we believe in a future heaven where every tear is wiped away, then we have a resilience to suffering that keeps us going. So how do we make sure that our lives match our story and that we're not like Peter who isn't the witness? Well, it's similar, but it begins with recognition and confession. It begins by saying, Lord, I know there's stuff in my life that's wrong. And we ask for his help. It's a cartoon from America, so it has a slight American thing that you need to translate. Uh, I wouldn't worry about all this yelling and swearing if I were you. They'll know that we're Christians by our bumper stickers. People will not know that you're a Christian because you have a fish on the back of your car. I know you're a Christian by the way you drive. They won't know we're Christians by the sticker on our car. It's how we respond to a car cutting us up, to a car going too slow, to someone that's bumped into us. To be a witness to the love of Jesus, we have to tell that story with our lives, not with a sticker. So it isn't simply about saying, I'm a Christian. It's can everybody else say, he, she's a Christian. No one's going to come and lead us in responding in a moment or two, but I want to just tie this together with these questions. Who wouldn't know that we seek to follow Jesus? How do we pray into that situation? And how naturally might we let them know? I don't advise the sticker on the bag or I'm a Christian. As I say, I advise, I was at church yesterday. But then this question, where do our actions deny the story of God in our lives? And I know that's a a painful question to ask. Where is it not matching up? Because we can only have God's help to transform that when we are honest and say, Lord, I'm sorry, this is not right. Is our behavior, I should have taken that second like out, is our behavior filled with grace and compassion like Jesus? Or is our behavior filled with judgmentalism and condemnation and argument and division and bitterness and resentment and greed? Somebody was reminding this morning of that, that thing where we used to wear those, those things around our wrists. Uh, what would Jesus do? WWJD. But is 
they're a resonance. Is our life a witness? Are our words the words of Jesus? And are our, is our use of gifts, our gifts, the way Jesus wanted when he gave them to us? When he gave us the money that we have, are we using it how he intended? When he gave us the skills that we had, is he using it, are we using it how he intended? When he gave us the, the relationships and the opportunities and the, and the people we meet this week, are we using them how he intended? When he gave us breath, are we using it how he intended? Are we matching up to what we say our story is? Let's pause for a moment. I'm going to ask Noah to rejoin me and let's pray. we just allow those questions to sit there for a moment. Although they've got typos, we'll allow them to stay. Would you stand with me? Father, we want to be your witness. We, won't, we don't want you alone. With no one telling the story of what you've done. We want to live out and tell. We want others to know the story of your mercy, of your love, of your calling, and of our hope. We want to tell that story, Lord. We don't want anyone to say, I didn't know you believed that. But some of us are scared. And some of us are oblivious to the hypocrisy we live out. We thank you that your grace transforms us. We bring our broken lives to you. We bring our fears and we bring our failures and we place them at the cross. For that is our story that in the honesty before you, you cleanse, you forgive, you transform, you renew. And so we come to you, not away from you. We offer this week, we offer these relationships, we offer the people who are watching us to you and say, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may be all that you ask of us. And as we worship now, we come to your grace. Give us afresh an awareness of your love for us. Renew that story in our lives that we may live it. We need your grace. We stand in your grace. God of mercy, hear our prayer. We worship you, God of grace. Amen.